Well, good morning. Are you still praying for rain? Because this is, we got lots of rain. We got lots of rain. The farmers are enjoying it, and I'm looking forward to warmer weather. I just want to say that up front. My name is John Irwin. I'm the associate pastor here. And I wanted to know how many of you are here specifically because you wanted to know something about sibling rivalry? That's good because, you know, uh, this is one of those deals. Let me just be right up front with you. It sounded really good a month and a half ago that we we're going to put this series together, and my deal was to deal with adult sibling rivalry. We we're going to deal with the Cain and Abel syndrome. And then God did something that changed my mind. I was in Mexico. And I was doing some teaching at a chapel down there, and it came out of my quiet time. And um, I'm going to do an audible this morning. So I'm going to give you everything I know about sibling rivalry first, and then I'm going to get to the message. Here's what I know about sibling rivalry. Stop it. Okay, now, <laughs> um, let's turn uh, to the book of Joshua. <laughs> Actually, someday I will talk on that topic, but not... Today. By the way, that stop it comment if you, is classic Bob Newhart for those over 50 and remember that classic scene. Um, I want to talk about the parable of the three chairs. And I'm going to illustrate it this morning with this being chair number one, this being chair number two, and this being chair number three. All right? Chair one, chair two, chair three. And I want to talk about this idea of why do we see so many families where there are kids who grow up in what we would determine to be, from all outward perspectives, great Christian families. And yet somewhere along the way, the baton gets dropped, passed, kicked. What happens? And here's what I know to be true. There are parents here today whose hearts are breaking because to the best of their ability, they've tried to live a first chair Christian experience. And I'm going to explain what each of those chairs represent in a moment. But I realize that where I'm venturing today is painful for some of you. It's painful for some of you grandparents who three generations are looking at, wow, what's going to happen to my grandkids? Because I'm worried about my kids. And I want to make a, a hypothesis today that I think I'm going to show you from the Scriptures that I see this pattern of first chair, second chair, third chair Christianity throughout the Bible. Let's see if I can get us there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at Your text today. We look at Your words, and we do wonder why so many kids especially seem to, to fall away from their faith. These college students, high school students, folks in their 20s and 30s, it can happen at any age, Lord, but we do see that, in fact, there are casualties in the baton of faith being passed. So we ask that you'd give us wisdom today as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to take these notes out because it's going to be helpful for you to fill in some key words as we uh, go through the Scriptures. We'll be in Joshua chapter 24 and in Judges chapters 1 and 2 uh, eventually today. And as we look at uh, this, I want to give credit where credit is due. I was sitting in a chapel at Biola University in the spring of 1975. You now can do the math, figure out how old the gray-haired dude is, but that was the year. And a guy by the name of Bruce Wilkinson was, was speaking in chapel, and he was the first guy that I ever heard talk about this idea of this three-chair Christian experience of first generation, second generation. I better put this down. Someone take this from me because I'm going to hit myself with it. Thank you. Nice catch. Brian, good hands. Um, and he was talking about this idea, this idea that there's this generation ebb and flow, and it, it devolves away from the Lord. 
And I sat there mesmerized, and I've been thinking about this, but, and I, was, I studied this for a bit, and then I kind of forgot about it. And I was sitting on a bench in Rosarito Beach a month ago, early in the morning, having a quiet time, and I happened to just be going through Joshua and Judges, and I was reminded of these stories. So that's the genesis of where we're at. Now, I want to make an observation. This, this first generation, second generation, third generation uh, phenomena, it happens not just in families. It happens in schools. I was doing a little research this week. Do you know that Dartmouth, in their charter originally, said that the students had to be spirit-filled? I had no idea. I'm kind of interested in this because I have a, a senior living in our home. She's from China, and she's applying to 16 different universities right now, and the way she ranks them and what's important to her. But I was telling her about kind of the history of some Ivy League schools. Harvard used to require daily devotions as part of their core curriculum. Uh, Yale, in its origin, was a Bible school. And so we see the school slide, denomination slide, and of course, if you're, if you're a committed Christ follower, you call it the slippery slope of cultural compromise, right? You kind of classify your mind, well, if culture's going this direction and the Bible's going this direction, this predictable slide will happen. And so how does it affect families? How does it affect kids? I think we'll see in Joshua's family uh, the way it works. So I'm going to actually go to the pattern first, then I'll give you some key words in a second. Let's look at the pattern in Scripture here first, and I want to read you a couple of verses. Let's start with Joshua. We'll put him in the first chair. Joshua 24, 15. Look at it with me. What is the, the, the end game at, at the end of his life? What does he say as he's challenging Israel? He says this, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And what he's telling them is, hey, you can do what you want, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve. If you want to serve God, this is what's going to cost you. And remember, there's all kinds of reasons why they would want to serve God having come out of Egypt. And so I want you to write in that box, put the word Joshua, all right, and the words 2415, this to remind you of that. And I, I want you to get this idea. If you're a first-generation Christian, you know God and you have experienced His power. You know God, and you've experienced His power. Now, think about that generation. There were four major miracles that happened that the children of Israel go through in that time period of their life. Think about it with me. Let me just give you a little history. First, there's the ten plagues in, in Egypt, right? In Exodus chapters 8 through 12, ten different times God says, I'm better than these guys, so to speak. Those gods of the Egyptians, not going to cut it. Then they cross the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. Then they get to the Jordan, and you, there's other uh, incidences there in Joshua chapter 3, and then there's the battle of Jericho in Joshua 5 and 6. It, those are just four of the ways that the children of Israel has seen God and experienced His power. They've watched God do it. And I think about those of us who are maybe first-generation Christians in our own families. When you're sitting in the first chair, you know that God is real and vibrant and you've experienced Him. Now, here's the chilling fact. What happens because of grumbling? Forty years goes by, right? And that whole generation passed away. Go over to Judges chapter 2, verse 7. Judges chapter 2, verse 7. And it says, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the house, uh, the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. So then after all that, there's another generation who are what I would say the people who are living in the second chair. And the difference is, because remember, 40 years goes by, and that generation outlived Joshua. They die, right? So you now have people who have heard the stories of their ancestors about what God did. But right now, life for them isn't all that great. They've been out in this wandering wilderness experience. And I would say the key words there is they know God. At least they know about Him. 
but they have not personally experienced his power. They know about him. They've heard about his power, but it's kind of secondhand, isn't it? Because they weren't there. They didn't see those things happen, okay? They can tell the stories of the first generation, but something goes terribly wrong, and look what happens just three verses later. We get to the third chair. Look at Judges 2.10. And all that generation, which I believe it's the ones who have already passed the ones who have died, the second generation, after this generation has passed, what does it say about the third generation? And all that generation who were gathered to their fathers, and there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which He had done for them. So they don't know what God, they don't know God, period, and they don't know what He's done. Let's rewind again. Knows God, has seen and experienced His power, knows about God, have heard about His power. Third chair, don't know God, don't know about His power. Think with me. This is Joshua, who in his family is sitting in the third chair? His who? His grandsons, his granddaughters. And that's where many of you in this audience are feeling that tension today. Because you're feeling like you're sitting in the first chair, but you're worried about the legacy to the next two generations. And so I can't possibly fathom that in my own mind with my own grandkids, which I'll talk about in a moment. So now let's go back and let me define these chairs for us, and we'll just, we'll just do it, all right? The characteristics of the first chair, I think that is commitment and character. Commitment and character, all right? They own their faith. They're sold out. Um, it's real. It's tangible. First chair. Second chair, I'm going to call that the chair of compromise and conflict. Compromise and conflict. I'm going to say this. I'm going to go out on a limb. I think sometimes God's first. And here's the word I'd put in there. Saved, but not sold out. Saved, but not sold out. Christian, Christian. One experiences God's power. The other one talks about God's power. Okay? And what happens? In chair two, inconsistency begins to creep in. God is cool when it's convenient, when it fits my schedule, when it doesn't cramp my style, when it doesn't change my lifestyle, when I'm not having to be too odd for God, when I don't stand out, when I can kind of blend in as long as I can do it on a Sunday-only thing, but not the rest of the week. That's chair number two. And then we see um, the next chair is the chair of what I would call capitulation and crisis. Capitulation and crisis. And I think that chair is a, is a difficult chair for any of us to really admit that there are kids in our own families. And for some of you, you're sitting in chair one, and your kids have slid. You're not even sure they're in chair two. And in fact, your greatest fear is they've never made a commitment to the Lord and they're firmly entrenched in chair number three. And if I know a father's heart and a mother's heart, you don't sleep well at night because you ask yourself, what did I do wrong? How did I drop the baton? And, and if, you, if you're really honest, you question, does God know what he's doing? I want to give you a little hope this morning, because I'm going to see this pattern over and over again, but we're going to land the plane in a way that I think you'll leave encouraged. Let me give you this general observation. What I've seen over the years, when your kids are doing well spiritually, parents take way too much credit. And when they're doing poor spiritually, they take on way too much blame. Otherwise, look at every example of Old Testament patriarchs in the Scripture. I think they give us those examples not as like, wow, you better step it up. 
It's more like, hey, look at the foibles of every biblical family in the Bible. There's issues. Almost every family in the Bible has issues. Now, there we go. So, you have a commitment and character, compromise and conflict, or uh, capitulation. And I think this idea of capitulation, this idea of just, it, there's crisis. And this idea of conflict and compromise, I'm going to show you that historically in Israel, the reason they end up in so much problem, and throughout the judges, 15 times, 15 times, the judges, they're fallen away from God, they repent to some degree, say, I need help. A judge comes and says, let's do this. They tell, tear down the, the, the bad stuff, the Baals and the Asherahs, and as long as that judge is kind of, kind of directing them, they follow. And then he dies and some other foreign nation comes in and they start over and over and over again. Fifteen times. They are stubborn, stubborn people. This next picture is of two people. This is what drives this sermon today. How many of your grandparents? Grandparents, I'm going to ask you this. These little guys don't yet know the Lord. I believe that I've lived as best as I can a first chair, genuine, authentic, transparent Christian life. I've tried. Not perfect. Clearly not perfect. My wife will be in the second hour identifying for you, if you want to ask her, a long list of things that I could improve on. To the best of my ability, I've prayed that as we've passed the baton, my kids aren't sitting in the second chair, but they're in the first chair. But you've got to ask yourself, if Joshua is all who he says he was and what he did, it is unfathomable to him that by Judges chapter 2, verse 10, that his grandkids are sitting in the third chair. Just kills us doesn't it? It's like, ouch, Lord, why? Well, let me see if we can identify some reasons why that happens. Let me jump you ahead to Revelation chapter 3, and let's look at some Scripture. Let me see if this pattern is repeated other than in the Old Testament. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, right? I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you either be cold or hot, Verse 16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Let's look at the Scripture. Apparently, chair one, you're hot. Apparently, chair number three, you're cold. Chair number two, lukewarm. Hot, lukewarm, cold, according to Revelation chapter three. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural man does not receive or accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I would suggest chair number one is the spiritual man. Chair number two is the carnal man. Chair number three is the natural man. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think I can substantiate it. I believe both of these two, two chairs are people who know the Lord. In other words, if they were to die today, they'll go to heaven. The difference is the way they experience God. But if you're sitting in chair number three today, I don't think you know the Lord. And that's a hard pill for many to swallow. So, what are the characteristics of the first chair? And I clearly did not leave enough room in that box for all of you who are note takers. So, flip your notes over or find some space. I'm going to give you characteristics that kind of all fit in the Scripture, and then I'll illustrate it again with David's family in just a moment. Let me give you characteristics of the first chair. I think they're spiritual people. And in, in, uh, in David's case, this is a man after God's own heart, which we'll look at in a second. So, they have a heart for God. Uh, it does not mean, if you're in the first chair, that you are sinless or perfect, all right? Not sinless or perfect, but their heart's desire 
is to follow God with our with their heart. I think they also do something regularly. They confess sin. First chair Christians realize how much they need God, and they're constantly aware that, Lord, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I'm grateful for your redemption. I confess I need you today. In fact, the song that Chad just sang kind of lends towards that. My eyes are dry. Second chair. I think often second chair Christians are people who came to Christ at a young age in Bible-believing churches just like ABF. In other words, it was passed from mom to dad through Awana, through Sunday school, through family devotions, through prayer times. But there is something about the second chair experience that they don't experience God in the same way their parents did. Maybe that conversion wasn't as dramatic as mom and dad's. Mom and dad, wow, changed their life. For them, it was more like I kind of grew up in that home. They don't always own their faith. I think second chair, when I talk to people who are in that stage, they talk to me about long periods of spiritual dryness where they don't get anything out of God's Word. They've tried and they've given up. Quiet time goes out the window. Prayers are something they do when they're desperate and they need to get out of a jam. And I think they begin to make subtle compromises in how they rationalize the way they live their faith. And oftentimes, the second chair Christian is dealing with a host of what I would call closet or hidden sin because they're not talking to God regularly, they're not confessing it, and they let this closet of deceit grow kind of in the background of their spiritual experience. And you find them pulling away from church involvement you know, guys like Josh McDowell and other uh, philosophers, apologetics guys have said this, that rarely do people reject the faith for theological reasons. Most of the reasons people reject faith is because of a moral reason. And if they've at some point trusted Christ and their lifestyle is not in alignment with the first chair, they're conflicted. They're conflicted. In fact, what happens is they're constantly compromising. There's a subtle compromise over and over again. And in fact, as parents, if you're in the first chair, you find yourself bargaining with those kids constantly about getting them to come to church or going to youth group or doing this or you got to find a nice Christian girl to date, you know, whatever, right? We have all kinds of, of conversations with especially our adult kids. And we are reluctant to be forceful and say, you need to do this because you've gone from them living in your home to now they're outside your home, and what spiritual voice do you have, and will they listen to you, and, you're, and you live with that. And so, I think the characteristics of the third chair is, number one, they don't know God. They, they haven't experienced it the way at least a first chair or even a second chair. Maybe they've actually rejected God at some point. I think they often have intellectual doubts that translate into moral relativism. In fact, opinion, the court of opinion is more important to them. What do my Facebook friends say about that topic? There's an objective versus subjective approach to truth. Their, their approach would be more subjective versus objective. And ultimately, there's a rejection of God's authority in their life. No, I'm not doing that. Not going there. Not buying that. Not drinking the Kool-Aid. Open your eyes, mom and dad. Come on. Don't you see the hypocrisy in the church? And you can begin to hear them tick off all the reasons why they're not going to church anymore. By the way, going to church is a symptom, right? It's just a symptom. Because why would you want to be in a place that lifts up the name of Jesus when you have this baggage of guilt in your life because of your lifestyle choices, or when you're feeling like you're always coming home and you're getting hammered by mom and dad about what you didn't do or where you didn't go, and seriously, you had to have someone drive you home last night because you were so drunk? Now, lest you think this is a completely 
intellectual exercise. It's not. Because it happened in my family. To the best of my ability, I feel like Cheryl and I have tried to live our lives in this chair. We had two kids, an older daughter, who I believe for most of her life has sat in the first chair. She's tried to, she, she loves the Lord. She's the mother of those two little ones you saw on the screen earlier. And if we would have stopped at one kid, <laughs> I am telling you, I would, I would have written the book on how to be a super parent. And I would be abusing you with just these pearls of wisdom of how you too can have great kids in five easy steps. Just fill in the blanks. They all begin with D. Devoted, deciding, you know, whatever, you know. But God in His providence brought a boy <laughs> into our family who from the womb came out fighting and asking questions and no, I've got to experience this for myself. I don't drink the Kool-Aid just naturally. And those conflicts in our home escalated to the point that when he was two weeks from graduating from high school, we had to invite him to live in another geographical location. That just sounds better than being kicked out, by the way. <laughs> and he moved out of our home. And it was five very frustrating, lonely, heartbreaking years. Now, I want to suggest that when this happens, it doesn't happen overnight. Just like the erosion on the seashores of our beaches doesn't happen overnight and all of a sudden houses fall off cliffs, spiritual erosion from godliness to godlessness just doesn't happen because of one significant event. There's many of those, and I won't get into how that happened in his life. And so, you have another family. Let's look at David's family. And, and by the way, the characters of the third chair, it was really interesting. I'm, I'm all the way to Judges 17 now. Judges 17, 6 says, period describing that period of the judges, it says, they did what was right in their own eyes as they saw fit. In other words, everyone did whatever he pleased. Now, until, we, you know, we, we can just beat up the culture of our day saying, yeah, that describes our culture. Everyone does whatever they want. They can do whatever they please. But that's describing Israel. That's describing Israel who had every reason to buy into God's plan and program. That's what described Israel in just two generations. Now, I want to tell you why I think the second chair Christian is most conflicted and reprising his role as the person on the chair. I'm inviting back Robbie to join me this morning. Now, some of you go, what is he talking about? Well, you'll know in a minute. Because a couple years ago I gave this illustration, but probably three-quarters of you weren't here, and I will illustrate why I think this is so dangerous. So let's say that Robbie, it's not true, but he's a second chair Christian, all right? I don't know if his folks are here. They would be just turning over in their grave because I know they're in the first chair. Why, would it be true that Robbie is kind of sliding towards godlessness? Here's what happens. I think when you're in the second chair, what is the ultimate thing that they're always trying to do? They got one foot in the Word, and they got one foot in the world, and they want to play both ends of the game, right? So stand up on this chair, and why don't you put one foot in the Word, and let's put one foot in the world, and no longer is there a second chair, all right? So there you go. This is their lifestyle. And uh, I need someone, um, Brian, would you just put your stuff down and just hold that chair? And that'll be meaningful for a number of reasons, because the Word of God never changes. It doesn't move. And we're going to make sure that chair doesn't move, all right? Now, here's what happens. Here's what I think happens. When you got one foot in the Word and you got one foot in the world, you're playing both ends of the game, right? So on Sundays, what is that kind of Sunday experience for a guy like Robbie sitting in the second chair? Oh, my goodness. He is pious. He can say all the right things. He looks like he is sold out. 
He might even be in agape choir, or he might be helping in Awana. Or, and I, by the way, this is not an age thing. This isn't about 16-year-olds. Anybody can be in chair two. You can be 45 and be in chair two in church all your life. But because we're asking what happens with kids, well, what is it, his experience the rest of the week? He's over here in chair number three, and therefore, piousness goes out, and cool beyond measure is in. And so, we, we laugh about it that kids just want to fit in, but come on, parents, we've been there. You've been invited to that Christmas party. You want to fit in. You got to have, ladies, you have to have the right dress to wear to that party. Or, you know, everybody's, you know, consuming large amounts of alcohol, and you're trying to just fit in and not make a scene. And there's all kinds of things that we struggle with our own, don't we? And so what happens is, when you're a second chair Christian, whether you're a high school kid or a 45-year-old, you got one foot in the Word, and you got one foot in the world. Now, here's the problem. When your belief system, you say that God is true, and you remember, second chair Christians, they, they know the Lord, but you're not experiencing His power, you have doubts. And so what happens is your behavior slides, and so we know that sometimes there's been a compromise. And that behavior's pulling him away from God and from truth. And that causes tension, pain, frustration. And, and you can't go back and forth anymore. You're stuck. You're living a lie. When you say one thing and you do another thing, what do you call that person? A hypocrite. So it's no wonder you don't want to be around people who are sold out to Jesus because you feel so bad about your own experience. Now, there's two reactions. At some point, you can repent, right? And if you repent, this goes back the other way. And so as you move towards Jesus, it's not easy, <laughs> but you get your foot out of the world, literally, like move, thank you, and you're back with Jesus. Ouch. Now, see, the Holy Spirit, when He brings that kind of conviction, it's not that hard. But did you see, when I'm trying to push Him back to Jesus as a parent, that's hard. That doesn't work. Nobody wants that kind of guilt, not grace kind of approach. Okay, come back here. Little re No, no, come back up. We have more pain for you. Okay. And so, we left Him out here. He hasn't repented. There's pain, tension, frustration. So then there are some people in the second chair who kind of put their arm at God. I don't need God. I can do this on, your, on my own. And God goes, are you serious? Are you kidding me? You really think you can pull this off on your own? And what happens is you can't live that way. You're so conflicted, and you've compromised so many times that eventually God brings you to your knees, literally. Thank you, Robbie. All right. Now, it's a subtle thing, but remember again, God's Word and what He said, it never changed. There was no moving of the Scriptures to reinterpret those choices. I believe when there's genuine repentance and someone moves from the second chair, there is a work of the Holy Spirit. And all the cajoling, finger-pointing, guilt-tripping, you know, just, there's just crazy things we resort to because we're desperate. I remember the day when I sat in his apartment and the weed was so thick in the air, because when you have 15 or 16 kids doing this, it gets thick in the room. In fact, I was a little nervous that I was going to get high from being in the room. That's how much of it was in the room. And I had brought him something to eat because I knew he wasn't eating very well. But I ended up in conversations with all these kids who were in relative stages of 
cognizance. Let's just leave it that way, right? Some were more lucid than others. The ones who were lucid were shocked that I would be in that environment. And I'm not applauding myself because let me tell you, I screwed it up so many times with him. And they told me stories about their home and their dads and their moms that would break your heart. Oh, yeah, my dad was a pastor too. Or I used to go to church. And story after story followed the same pattern. Some were still angry, mad, I mean mad at God and their families. But most, here's the shocking, the shocking truth. I think most second chair Christian kids are dying. They're dying to come back. But either A, they haven't come to their senses, prodigal son story, or two, they haven't hit bottom so that they will come to their senses, or three, they don't know how to own up and make a move your direction for fear of another lecture, another scolding, another, I'm not bailing you out of jail again, dude, those kinds of experiences. And so it was an eye-opener. The one that was shocking to me, and I was part of my son's recovery, is he realized this issue was his. It wasn't mine. It wasn't his mother's. He had to come to grips with the reality of his choices. And so you see that in David's family. You had David. I think he's a first chair guy. From shepherd to king, man after God's own heart. Then he has Solomon. Wisest man in all the world, but if he's the wisest man in all the world, why does he hook up with over 700 women? His moral failures cripples his spiritual authority in his life that he has any ability to speak into the grandson Rehoboam. And here's a subtle, not so subtle description of Rehoboam. Just write this down in that box. Second Chronicles 12, 14. This is the summary of Rehoboam's life. And he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He had rejected Grandpa David's faith. That's just David's family. So what did David's family, if you look at that, what were they committed to? David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. I think David was committed to people. I mean, he loved God, but he was committed to people. He served and loved the people, didn't he, as a king. By the time you get to Solomon, Solomon serves when it's convenient. He's wise, but he's very much into prosperity. He's rich. And I'm not against having money. That's not my, my rant today. But I don't know if he loved people. I think he loved himself. And then by the time you get to Rehoboam, it's not about people. It's not about prosperity. I think it's about power. Remember, he had all kinds of crazy advisors tell him to do this. And he's serving himself, and he's using people. Write this phrase down. First chair Christians, love people and use things, not use people and love things. I think Rehoboam is the epitome of using. He was a user. First chair Christians, love people and use things, not use people and love things. So ultimately, it comes down then, friends, to convictions. First-chair Christians are obedient. Second-chair Christians are educated beyond their obedience. And I think third-chair, you're just disobedient. Obedient, educated beyond your obedience, and disobedience. Let's put that slide up there. Obedient, educated beyond your obedience, and disobedient. Let's talk about that obedience thing. The convictions of a first-chair Christian are rooted in God's Word. That's why at this church, if I don't get you into the Scriptures or Scott doesn't get your Scriptures, you go, ah, I didn't come here. I want to get into the Word. I, I like all this, but get me into the Word. I get it. And so their convictions and their worldview are rooted in historic evangelical orthodoxy. Now, I want to ask you a question. So, what if you're sitting out there and you're saying, 
Is there any hope for me if my parents don't know the Lord? They're in the third chair. Or maybe you recognize in your growing up, your parents were never in the first chair. They vacillated between maybe you were even sure if they knew the Lord or what about that? Can someone overcome what's happened in their family lineage? Are you destined to just go down this path if your parents are third chair, you're going to be third chair? Can anybody reverse the curse, so to speak? Look at Josiah, just real briefly, in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. Here's a guy who's a child king who was raised by a parent, Amnon. You can see his story in 2 Chronicles 33, 21, who was clearly evil. So here's Josiah raised by a third chair king father who was evil. I mean, evil describes his behavior. And here's what happens in his kid's life. Let me give you the chronological overview of Josiah. Eight years old, he becomes king. Eight years old. I guess that tells you how desperate Israel was at that point. 16 years old, he begins to seek God. 20 years old, he purges Judah by getting rid of idols. 26 years old, repairs the temple, and they find the law, and he starts living according to the law again, in the best sense of that word. And so, I did a rabbit trail this past month, and I said, I wonder how many times in the period of the kings do, do you know, there's a good king, there's a bad king, there's a bad king, and a good king. What's the, what's the ratio? Here's what I found. I, there's got to be a pattern here. Here's, I'm the master of the obvious. Godly kings begat godly kids. We see that pattern. I see godly kings, and then out are ungodly kids and kings after them. I see ungodly kings who, like in Josiah's case, produced a godly king. And the worst case scenario is I see an ungodly king, and the, and the lineage can, and there's another ungodly kid or king. All four. You can put in a little quadrant. Godly, producing godly, godly, producing ungodly, ungodly, producing godly, ungodly, producing ungodly, all four. So that kind of ruined my theory. I thought maybe I could find some way. But we see all four examples. So the good news is no matter where you find yourself today, if you choose to sit in chair number one, there's hope for your kids. But here's the bad news. If you're sitting in chair two or chair three, it's an uphill battle for them because they're not seeing the real Jesus from you. They're seeing a a mimic, a portraiture, a candid, but not the real deal. Educated beyond our obedience, what does that look like? Their convictions are on what others think, not grounded in the Word, but by the court of public opinion. Uh, They may know the truth, they just don't live it. Uh, They talk about it, but don't walk it. They may understand intellectually, but not emotionally, maybe more of a head than the heart. Here's the amazing thing. Chair number two, Christian, can sound like a chair number one Christian. In fact, they have a very similar testimony in terms of the look. The difference is God hasn't done anything in their lives for decades. And that's a scary proposition. If you grow up in a church, you started in chair one, but you realize that your experience with God has just subtly slid to the second chair and you didn't even know you were there. Because when someone asks you to share the last time you shared your faith, you go, oh, that was probably in college. Now you're 47. Or you wake up and you go, I used to go to church, and now, man, I I live for that vacation. I got to work harder, and I'm distracted. If you really took a deep look in your own life, you go, I hardly ever open my Bible other than on Sunday mornings. In fact, I don't even have a Bible anymore. I just look on my iPhone. Oh, I'm not going to get after you on that one. (laughs) It's hard to underline in your iPhone, though. I'm just telling you, though. I like you to circle things. So, maybe this educated beyond our obedience thing is something we have to look at in our own lives. Or in the third chair, when you're disobedient, clearly the convictions are based on the Word, on the world or the culture around them. Often share the second chair. They look at the second chair from the third chair, and they go, they're a bunch of hypocrites. I'm not going to be like them, so I'm just going to stay in the third chair. I don't want to live with that kind of conflict. 
And quite frankly, if you're in the third chair, you don't even really see authentic first chair Christian living. Well, let me wrap this up. What are some principles we can learn from why Christian kids fall away or why we fall away? And how do we get into the first chair? First thing you got to do is get out of the second chair. My guess is that virtually nobody in this room and this audience is sitting in the third chair for most of you. If you are, this is a great day for you to talk about what does faith mean and how could I, I make that faith commitment today. But my guess is most of you are in the first chair or hoping you're in the first chair, praying to God you're in the first chair, wish you were in the first chair, but if you look at those characteristics, you may find yourself today, quite frankly, you're sitting in the second chair. And it's not a surprise to your spouse. So get out of the second chair. And what I would say is t- get tired of being a performance-oriented Christian. Ask God to do something radical in your life. You know, one of the things that I love about the three ladies that sit in that row right there, they're in the first service, and I'm looking at my three friends. There was a fourth, Charlotte Boucher, who, who died a couple weeks ago. But I get to hang out with these first chair, sold out in their 70s, 80s. Some are in their 90s. I love hanging out with them because there's no pretense There's no fakeness. They might not always hear my question, but I can always see their heart. If I wanted to get kids out of the second chair, I'd make them go hang out with those ladies. That'll worm Jesus back into their heart. Get out of the second chair. Because when you got one foot in the Word and one foot in the world, it's never going to work. Number two, I think personal revival is essential, not optional. Every time there's a, f- a fix, uh, a redo, in those 15 times the judges come through, there's revival. There's a revival that happens in Israel, and people repent. And even as I'm talking about revival, I'm going to have the band just start walking up as I, I finish this sermon. So why don't we see more revivals today? Why don't we see revivals in our church? I think it's because we're content not to experience it. I think we had spent so long since we saw God miraculously do something that we're just kind of going, yeah, this is kind of business as usual. This is how church in America works today. No one really repents. No one gets down on their knees. No one confesses sin. No one really is honest about their stuff. They just kind of play the game and act phony, and they go to their life group, and they all act like everything's cool, but it's not cool. We need revival. I sat in Urbana in 1976, and I remember there was like 18,000 college kids. And if you could harvest and harness the power and passion that we had to do anything, we were ready to change the world. I thought I was going to be a missionary in Italy. I really did. I thought I was going to a foreign culture. I was going to be a missionary. But by 1978, he took me to a different culture. It was the culture of junior hires in Huntington Beach. Kind of a cross-cultural thing. And that's where God sent me. And ever since that time, I've tried to live my life that every day I make a choice to continue to sit in the first chair. But I'm telling you, it isn't easy. And this is not a grace versus guilt thing. I'm just saying living in the first chair is risky. It's hard. It's not easy. When things go wrong, you go, Lord, what are you doing? When you have a prodigal son, you go, I did what I thought you called me to do, God. Why is this happening? It's not easy, but we need revival. And it takes a risk. And it means believing in God for something you haven't even trusted yourself to believe yourself. But you say, God, we can do this. Help me do this. I don't even know what this is. And then thirdly, just summarizing what I've already said, don't be educated beyond your obedience. Hey, we got far more stuff we got to know. Just apply something today. I gave you a lot to think about today. Take one thing and apply it. 
What is God calling you out for in your life? What, is he, what area needs to be surrendered so that you get out of the second chair? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Simply stated, are you tired of living in the second chair if you're in that chair today? I'm going to go to the heart of it right now. Look at me. Look at me, please, if you believe you're sitting in the second chair and you're saying, I'm tired of being in that chair. Okay? Anybody else? You're not the only one. Okay? I don't know what God's calling you to do, but I know He says, get out of it. Repent of it. Okay? How many of you are more worried that you're in the first chair, but you've got a kid or a grandkid who's either in the second or the third chair? How about if you're in that category today? You're in the first chair? Look at me. I get it. We need to band together. You're in the first chair. I see you all over this auditorium. You know it. I know it. And we got kids and grandkids in chairs two and three. Would you tell someone in your life group about that? Don't cover it up anymore. Just say, I'm burdened. Talk to Nehemiah all you want, but would you eventually get to your own life and say, I need you to stand before God Almighty and beseech the throne of God for that kid by name. And don't give up. Never give up on that kid or on that grandkid. Because on Memorial Day 2009, our prodigal came home. Five years five long years. And I will pray today with you as long as it takes, with every single one of you, about your situation. And I think there's a whole bunch of us that need that prayer today. So let's line up and let's do it and pray for one another. Heavenly Father, I pray for revival. I want to be done worrying about my kid and instead worrying before your throne for that kid. And Lord, it may not be in my time, may not be in my way, but Lord, I'm not giving up. And may we be like Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you want to pray about a kid today, just come forward and we'll all pray for these kids together.